Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hey, y'all. I'm Bud Elliott, and this is Cover 3 College Football Summer School. We've done our research on the teams, and now we're bringing on the top team experts from the 24-7 Sports Network to help us fill in the blanks. Please follow us on Twitter at Cover3Podcast. That's Cover3Podcast. And leave us a five-star review on Apple and Spotify. All right. Class is in session. Hey guys, welcome back into the Cover 3 Podcast. This is our summer school edition where we talk about college football teams and try to fill in some of the blanks. And really pleased to be joined here by Mike Schaefer of Husker 24-7. Mike, thanks for coming on Cover 3, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, excited to uh, to come on and talk about yet another year in which Nebraska football could be good or could be a dumpster fire. We really don't know here, and Saturday <laughs> didn't tell us a whole lot. So it should be interesting. Well, let, let's let's talk about were, were they good last year? Because in my power ratings and a lot of the power ratings that, out there, they were pretty decent. I mean, like a top 25 team for much of the year. But they had some of the most insane close game bad luck I've ever seen with a 3-9 and nine record. It, it's This is very much kind of eye test versus metrics versus, versus bounce the ball, I guess. Yeah, it's tough because it, it felt like what most of the Big Ten West does is put together games in which the other team doesn't beat itself. And most of what Nebraska does is put together games where it plays well and then finds a way to beat itself. So it's uh, it, it was a perfect storm last year. They, they had a much better team than a 3-9 and nine record would indicate, but they still had a host of issues with just finishing off teams. They were bad in special teams. Their offense wasn't particularly good in the red zone at times. They couldn't run the ball when they needed to put games away. Uh, so they, they had all the hallmarks of a of an average team that the luck just kind of ran against them. Um, but they they also could show up in moments too. I mean, they gave Ohio State a really good game uh, for much of the day, and Lincoln, when most of the the team kind of knew the season was over at that point. And so uh, it was a it was a weird season. And this year looks to be even more fascinating because the spring game on Saturday kind of looked like a program that had restarted. It felt like a year one program with all the different coaching changes and a different quarterback with Adrian Martinez gone and Casey Thompson in. Uh, so it, it definitely has a different feel around Nebraska right now. It's just unclear if that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing uh, for, for the upcoming season. So let, let's let's start there on the offense. Uh, new offensive coordinator Mark Whipple comes in. Um, did a great job last year, I think, at Pitt at, at Kenny Pickett, and uh, really let really let him cook. He, he threw the ball all over the yard, as you mentioned. Adrian Martinez is off to Kansas State, so they bring in two quarterback transfers in Casey Thompson and Chubba Purdy, uh, you know, both of which were fairly highly recruited guys. Didn't really find success at prior programs due to a, you know, I guess, a number of issues. Thompson just. Texas is kind of a loaded room, and uh, you know Chubba just really could never stay healthy for more than five, six months of time in Tallahassee. Uh, are we thinking new look offense here? What, what what are we looking at? 
Yeah, it, it's going to look a little bit different. I, I think one of the, the kind of fascinating things is Scott Frost had to make a, a big change with this program, uh, you know, multiple years in and not seeing the kind of success with his offense that he wanted to see. They went out and they got a veteran offensive coordinator in, in Mark Whipple who tends to throw the ball quite a bit. And this is a, a program that, you know, has really talked about how they want to exert themselves uh, running the ball on teams. So it's going to be interesting how Mark Whipple's nature uh, works in, in sort of the offense that Scott Frost perceives or wants Nebraska to be. So that's that's going to be interesting to, to kind of see. I would imagine the strength of where this team is with, with its offensive line still very much a work in progress. They're going to lean pretty heavily on Casey Thompson's arm uh, far more than they did with Adrian Martinez's arm. So I, I think that's probably a good thing, too, because you also bring in Mickey Joseph at wide receivers coach. They had some interesting transfer portal additions with Trey Palmer, Isaiah Garcia Castaneda, Omar Manning and Oliver Martin are two highly recruited guys that are already on Nebraska's roster. So they may have some of their most talent on offense at wide receiver. So it might make sense for them to, to sort of be a, a more pass oriented offense as they attack teams this year. It, it sounds to me like you're more confident in, in, in the new receiver group than you are in the offensive line. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, part of it is that Nebraska's offensive line, they didn't have their possibly their two best offensive linemen didn't go through spring. Teddy Prohaska tore an ACL uh, last year. That was a, a true freshman that stepped in at left tackle, did a great job against Aiden Hutchinson, uh, got his first start the week before, and, and right before halftime against Michigan, he blew an ACL. And so they're hoping to have him back to, to be their left tackle at the beginning of the season. I think that's going to be a really tight time frame. If they can get him back before the Oklahoma game in September, that might be more realistic. Uh, and then Turner Corcoran, uh, another top two four seven highly recruited offensive lineman, a top 50 player in, in the 2020 class, I believe. He uh, he sat out the spring and he's possibly going to end up being their center, replacing Cam Jurgens, uh, the only offensive lineman likely to get drafted from last year's group. So they, they have a, a real state of flux up there and they have a new offensive line coach. And oh, by the way, Donovan Rayola has never been an offensive line coach anywhere. He just also happens to be the uncle of the number one recruit in 2024 and Dylan Rayola. And Dominic Rayola was a uh, former Husker great. So there's there's just a lot happening with the offensive line. And there's not a whole lot of reason to be confident at this point in time, especially because they really their best five haven't played together and they may not until September. So it's going to be kind of hard to, to figure out how that sort of works together with a run game. And so they're, they're really going to have to get a lot out of Casey Thompson and, and through the air this year, I think. I, I will say, with, with with the exception of the Oklahoma game, I feel like their schedule through Halloween sets up nicely. Uh, obviously, I should probably read off the schedule for listeners at home uh, who, who don't have it pulled up. But Northwestern, North Dakota, Georgia Southern, OU, Indiana Rutgers at Purdue, Illinois. The, your better defenses that you're going to face, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, are the final three games of the year. So if they can get that continuity uh, by you know, Halloween, they, they, they could have a chance to finish strong. Yeah, I mean, it, it. that's why Nebraska, for a multitude of reasons, is going to be pretty fascinating early in the season because if they can get out of that game in Ireland, which is another oh, – I forgot it's in Ireland. Yeah. yeah, it's in Ireland. <laughs> They're playing in week zero again. 
Bill Moose really wanted to get that week zero credit, and it, it really blew up in their face against Illinois last year. Uh, and now they they have to try to get a win in another continent when they struggle to win in North America as it is. So we'll <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But Northwestern is a good matchup, I think, for Nebraska, especially because that's kind of a team that, uh, you know, Pat Fitzgerald coming off of another down year uh, there, they usually go every other. Um, so it'll be, a, I think, a pretty good matchup to start. If they can get through that first game, they do have a little bit of a runway with North Dakota and Georgia Southern before you get Oklahoma. And this is maybe the best time in the last decade to play Oklahoma. So, you know, if Nebraska is able, yeah, if they're able to, to, to get their, uh, to get things kind of going on offense and that defense can just be average, they, they do have a chance for a fast start, which is something they have not done under Scott Frost. And I, I know that's a big emphasis, obviously, uh, to just try to get some momentum going early instead of always having to play catch up. So to the other side of the ball, I, I'm a huge Eric Tenander fan. I, I think he does a great job. If you look at, at the guys Nebraska gets drafted, you know, and they've had some roster attrition issues over Frost's time, which is not uncommon for these guys who were hired in the early signing period era. And they, you know, we see the washout rate of a lot of these first-time classes that they do sign. I, I thought he did a great job. Nebraska's explosive play prevention last year was just top-notch. I mean, they really did a great job not allowing any balls over the top. And, you know, they're trying to win – in the red zone, but I look at this and I, I got some concerns for the personnel of this side. Like I'm mm. still pretty confident in him, but four or five DBs who played 450 snaps are gone. Like Mike, the other problem here is if you had five DBs play 450 snaps, that means you stayed pretty damn healthy in the secondary too, you know, and now, now four of the five are gone. It, how big of a worry is this? It, it's a big concern because part of why Nebraska felt confident going into last year is that they were really old on defense. They had a lot of guys between JoJo Doman, Ben Stilley, Deontay Williams, Markel Dismuke all came back for super senior years. They were old and they knew that system really well. And they had gotten better from 2020 into 2021. And they were a, they were a confident group. And, you know, there was times last year, I mean, they they stopped Kenneth Walker in a way that nobody else was able to. They were able to slow down Ohio State's offense in JoJo Doman's last game and really gave C.J. Stroud issues. That defense, Eric Chenander, week in and week out, sometimes you know without playing with some of the best players that he has, is able to put together a pretty good strategy. He's got his work cut out for him this year. You're you're going defensive back. I think the bigger issue for Nebraska might be up front on the defensive line. That's where they, I was going next. Yeah, they so that's they're really thin. They had seven okay. defensive linemen available for him this spring. Guys got over 400 rep or over 400 reps in terms of practice and uh, scrimmage this spring. Um, and there's whispers that some of those guys were just putting together good spring tape and are jumping in the transfer portal. They lost Tony Tuioti to the to uh, to Oregon. Uh, to he joined the new staff out there. They lost Jordan Riley to Tony Tuioti in Oregon. That was a guy that they were depending on just for depth. They're going to be really involved in the transfer portal to try to find another defensive lineman or two. They need bodies. And so that's that's where the initial concern is because you got to be able to stop the run in the Big Ten. And then in the secondary, I think Travis Fisher has done a pretty nice job um, over the last couple of years when he's had to adjust and he's found some different guys. They're really excited about uh, Deshaun Singleton, a junior college defensive back that they're going to have to play safety for him. Tommy Hill out of the, the Florida. Uh, yeah, he's in an Orlando, Orlando kid from Edgewater. That, that's right. Huge. Huge nice win up. for them. Yeah, and they they really thought they were going to get him in the 2021 class, but when everything got shut down visit-wise, he wasn't able to come out to Nebraska. He ends up at Arizona State. He immediately makes that Arizona track. State didn't exactly shut down visits, Mike. No, they uh, <laughs> they had a different strategy, it felt like, the yeah. most during the uh, the early days of the recruiting <laughs> shutdown. So 
Um, you know, props to them. We'll see how that holds out over the long term. But I, I think the secondary, they've got some talent there. Omar Brown uh, didn't have much of a spring, but he's an FCS guy coming from Northern Iowa, had seven interceptions, was an FCS All-American as a freshman, freshman of the year. He's someone that I think they're pretty excited about. And then Quentin Newsom uh, from Georgia is in his third or fourth year with the program. It's, it's hard to remember with the COVID year, I'm telling you. I don't know how you guys do it. You have to cover all these different programs and know which guy has fifth, six years of eligibility. I have one program. It's tough to remember, but Newsom had a great year. He started 12 games last year for Nebraska. He came on as one of their best corners. They feel really good about half the field. And so if they can get the rest of that secondary to come along, um, but it linebacker, they're very experienced. And Eric Shenander has a lot of different ways he can go. They're going to mix four, three and three, four looks on teams. It's just whether they can figure it out in the trenches. If, if they're able to, survive with their their limited numbers and they have guys they like but it's just you can't afford any injury they could be okay defensively and that runway we were talking about with the offense that kind of works defensively too they don't really face any offenses yeah. that have you super concerned so it gives them a little bit of time to get settled and and for guys to kind of figure out some roles in 2022 so i i uh i know we had a big debate on this on cover three northwestern actually uh, has been the worst powerhouse offense the last two years that were not a COVID year. So, I'm, I mean, that's a nice opponent to open with as far yeah. as if you have defense to break in. Jordan Southern really can't throw. North Dakota is a mixed bag. Oklahoma can throw it on you. Like, that's a concern. Yep. But Indiana is a we'll see. Rutgers, I don't think, can throw the ball still effectively enough to really scare you. Purdue can throw it. And Illinois, yep. probably not a great throw team. Minnesota's not bad. Again, through Halloween, you're facing two, maybe three offenses that – really scare you throwing the ball um illinois can run it on you obviously but um so let's let's end on this and i, I think it's been a great conversation I've, I've learned a lot i mean this is why we do these we're trying to fill in the blanks and figure out what you know what my notes have wrong one thing i'm pretty sure i got right though is that nebraska special teams uh, they just made me want to throw things last year man i like i i had on our cover three locks pot i had you know good nebraska bets i I had Michigan State dialed in the whole year, right? And I'm like, no, it's time to get off that Michigan State train. We're going to get Nebraska here. And then they punt the ball. It's harder to punt a ball further away just physically within, like, the physics of how big a football field is, further away from your coverage team. Yep. And that, that Michigan State – they were, Connolly, my friend Bill Connolly, had them 127th in special teams ratings. And I've been doing this a long time. I don't think I've ever seen a top 25 power-rated team be bottom three in the country in special – like, how – Please tell me it's going to be better just by random, like positive regression, maybe something. Yeah. I mean, just there's, it's really <laughs> hard to imagine it being worse. Right. So um, from that alone, they, they've taken a, a multifaceted approach with special teams this year. They now have a special teams coordinator and Bill Bush, who's really involved uh, with special teams at a couple different stops, whether it was with Wisconsin or when he was most recently at LSU. And then he was involved in special teams when he coached at Nebraska before. So they have a designated special teams coordinator. We'll see if that matters as much. Bill Bush was helping behind the scenes as an analyst last year. Um, so it's not like there's a huge change in terms of schematics. What they did is they went out and they got a couple FCS guys that were really good at their craft. Brian Buschini was the punter of the year for Montana, uh, the FCS punter of the year. So they're replacing um, a horrific punting duo. I mean, that's – I you try yeah. to be kind, but it was really bad last year. Uh, I'll tell you, there's nothing I've ever seen quite like sitting in the press box at that game against Michigan State, watching the ball go in the air and knowing that the coverage unit was not – and just knowing. Like, you – 
I knew as soon as the guy caught that ball, and it's hard to tell on television, I'm sure, but when you have that press box angle, you knew that was a disaster immediately. So they they have Brian Buscini, and that's going to help. Timmy Bleakroad did not come here this spring, but he is the Furman, or he was the kicker for Furman last year. He's 16 and 19 from field goal. Uh, Connor Culp was the Big Ten kicker of the year, and then he just lost it, and they did not have another place kicker that could really help them out at all. So we'll see kind of what happens there. I think part of the problem Nebraska had last year is they would find themselves in between not quite the red zone area and not quite the 35 yard line. And they would sort of be forced to go for it or sort of be forced to kick these field goals with no confidence that they could make it. And that kind of puts Scott Frost in a tough game theory situation as to what he wants to do. Uh, they trusted their defense a lot. And so they often went for it and they just weren't that successful on fourth down. So we'll see. I, I think having more, even just baseline confidence at special teams could elevate Nebraska to one or two more wins last year. I, I don't think that that's really too hard to pull out of last season. Yeah, I mean, if you just – if you give me average special teams, they make a bowl. Like, not only were their special teams bad, but they came at, at extremely high leverage situations. It, it's – you can't be you can't be 6 of 11 on field goals under under 39 yards. Like, come on, guys. Some of these are layups. Uh, I, I would have to, like, really dig into the stats, but I I don't know that there's another media group in the country that watched watch more missed field goals last year because Nebraska's opponents were shockingly bad. Other than uh, Ohio State's kicker, who was perfect, I think he was 5 for 5 that day, every other kicker Nebraska faced was really bad too. So there's just something in the water when, when Nebraska plays a team apparently last year. How many uh, How many kick returns did they fumble last year? At least one against Illinois, right? Yes. Um I think it was like, more of a punt return issue, if I recall okay. correctly. Because uh, their starting field position off kick returns yeah. is also like yep. bottom five in the country. So I'm trying to think. like It's hard to do that unless you have multiple fumbles. Well, and also when you're just really bad at taking the free 25 yards. <laughs> they love to return it to the 11-yard line last year. I think they averaged almost one a game. Uh, it, it, look, mm-hmm. I, I joke about this, but there were times where you had to wonder if they were ever coached on the special teams unit with – I mean, Cam Taylor Britt in the first game of the year, he's a really good player. He's going to get drafted on uh, here at the end of the month. He fielded a punt at the two-yard line, ran back into the end zone, realized he was in the end zone, threw the punt forward, and they took a safety in the week zero game against Illinois. That was a real thing that happened, and yeah. it wasn't even the worst special teams gaffe that they had all year, which is incredible in its own right. They had multiple punts that were less than 10 yards. I mean, the the things they were able to accomplish last year, I don't know that anybody's going to get close to. I, I I just feel like this is a nice bounce back team, but last year should have been so much better given that defense they ran out. I, I, nope. Oh, man. All right. Well, hey, I'm, I'm really looking forward to watching this. I'm looking forward to reading all y'all's coverage on Husker 24-7 and listen to y'all's podcast. This is going to be great. Uh, Mike, where can they follow you on Twitter? Yeah, you can uh, you can find me at Mike J. Schaefer, uh, or you can find us at Nebraska 24-7. We've got a weekly podcast that runs out, and then uh, usually a couple other quick hits as well as podcasts, and all of our coverage at Husker 24-7 as well. That is the place to be if you are a Nebraska fan, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. Appreciate you joining us on Cover 3 Summer School. You ready? Go. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Hang on! It's off the charts spectacular. Go, go, go! Tom Cruise has outdone himself. The world's coming after you. Stay out of my way. Prepare for one of the best action movies ever made. This is getting exciting. 
Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey guys, pleased to welcome in Stephen Bailey of Syracuse on 24-7 Sports. You can follow Stephen at Stephen with a PH. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can see the spelling. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that as well. So at Stephen with the PH underscore Bailey one. Uh, follow Stephen's work for a long time. As you guys know, I'm kind of a, a native ACC dude back to the old SB Nation days. And I don't think anybody does a better job of covering Syracuse sports and particularly a guy who enjoys football. Right. There's so many folks who cover Syracuse who love the basketball side. And uh, I think that's a part of the job, man. But I, I, I love how you geek out on the Syracuse football because I, I that's where I go for my Syracuse coverage. Yeah. I mean, when you've been doing something long enough, it just takes up <laughs> so much of your brain space. You almost can't get it out. But it's it's fun and it's fun to connect with, you know, the other people who, you know, follow Syracuse football in the spring, <laughs> in the summer when, you know, Obviously, like you said, most of the community here is pretty focused on hoops, except for 12 weeks in the fall. No doubt. All right. So Syracuse, not to look back too much, but we, we kind of have to have some kind of baseline for you know this discussion. Five and seven in 2021. They were about 80th or so if you kind of average out the major power ratings, you know, Connolly's SP Plus, FPI, et, et cetera. Um Pretty brutal finish down the stretch, losing to Louisville, NC State, and Pitt uh, by a combined 118 to 34. I, I think I eyeballed it. Um, what is sort of the mood there as we go into another year? That's interesting. You know, I think there was a ton of disappointment at the end of the year because if you go toward the middle of the schedule, they lost some really close games. I mean, if you're talking advanced metrics, they should have beat Wake Forest. <laughs> yeah. And there was a lot of uh, – you know, in-game decision-making and minutiae, second-guessing that kind of went with that. And, you know, by the end of the season, the passing game was defunct. The offensive line ran into health issues and, you know, people were down. I, I will say there's some new life in the team in the spring. And I get that that's like inherent to spring practice. This is the time for optimism where ones crush twos and everyone looks good and that kind of happens. But you got a new offensive coordinator in Robert and I from Virginia Jason Beck, the quarterback's coach, and, and those guys have, I think, instilled some belief that Syracuse can have a balanced offense. They can have a passing game. Sean Tucker won't have to go up against eight-man boxes constantly <laughs> throughout the season, and you know they're still dialing up the same run calls and getting third and eight and punting. You know they they, they think that there's a path to being a better team and having an offense that can match this defense. I, I think particularly the receivers and the quarterbacks. I've noticed that. Um, talking about the offense uh, opening up a bit, having more options, more motions, more for a defense to think about. Um, obviously, they, they were running kind of a version of the veer and shoot under Dino Babers and Sterling Gilbert. Before that, that, um, you know, those players thought was maybe a little bit more limited and a little bit more predictable. But again, those are the words you kind of are used to hearing in spring. But just talking to the guys, you know, th they believe they can be better in 2022. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in this team. And for, for listeners at home, if you don't know, Sean Tucker is a dude at running yeah. back. I, I like I one of my main goals on cover three is to not talk playoff all the time and then to talk at you know other schools. And like there's a lot of really interesting teams to follow in this sport. And they stacked the box against him uh all the time, and he still had a, a pretty awesome year. Syracuse uh 33rd in rushing success rate last year. <laughs> But 115th in passing success rate. And that's kind of where – so 
Garrett Schrader's back. I'm correct to assume he's going to be the guy unless they get a transfer in, I think. I think it's likely. Yeah, I mean, they brought in uh, Dan Valari, a Michigan transfer, who is the third stringer there. Right now, I think redshirt freshman Justin Lampson is is the number two guy. He might get a chance to push Schrader, but Schrader's the odds-on guy to start week one. I'm interested in this because uh, if you look at Robert and I's career, uh, you go back to what he did at BYU, they were fairly QB, you know, QB run heavy. Uh, and last year at UVA, not so much with Armstrong. Uh, they, they really did a tremendous job of using the full field, and they, they put guys in a lot of different positions. Uh, but you had a trigger guy in Armstrong who's pretty good. It, in your estimation, like how, how is this going to look? Because Schrader is not – I don't want to dog the kid, but like he's not known for his passing at, at, at this point in his career. Right? I mean, he's more of a rusher than he is a thrower so far, it seems. Yeah, his last year at Mississippi State, he got moved to wide receiver. Uh, yeah. So he's – yes, um, and he's certainly someone who has a chip on his shoulder about that. He does not like to be told, you know, that he would not, you know, be a good quarterback. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's accuracy questions. Um, you look at a guy who was basically had just as much production yard-wise as a runner last year as, than a passer and certainly many more touchdowns. I mean, he was among the most productive rushing quarterbacks in the country last year. So how much better can he be? I think, you know, he kind of needs to prove that to everybody. I don't I, I haven't seen anything in the past from an accuracy and I guess arm talent standpoint that makes me think, you know, they'll be able to win with him slinging the ball all over the place. But I, I think when you compliment him with Sean Tucker, we saw last year that even without a passing game, they were still able to do a lot on the ground. Uh, sometimes it looks triple optiony. You got you know, lead blocker going left and the flow of the, the flow of the line going right, you know, trying to maybe isolate a defender who you think you can win one-on-one -on -one against um, defensive ends or outside linebackers. So I think we'll see more of that. Um, but yeah, I, I think Robert and I and Jason Beck have their work cut out in terms of developing a passing game. That's going to match this because you look at the receiving core and, and there's no one who is like clearly ready to produce at a high level in the ACC. Taj Harris transferred out midway through last year after the kind of shift from Tommy DeVito to Garrett Schrader and from balanced to, to run heavy. Um, they haven't had someone like Steve Ishmael or Amba Atatawa who can go win one-on-one -on -one against, you know, good ACC players. Uh, and they've got an offensive line with a couple of holes. They they don't know who their center is going to be. They've shuffled through a couple guys in the spring. Um, right tackle, definitely an issue. And, you know, their top two guards are guys who've had injury histories. So Schrader, there's questions about him, but there's certainly questions about the receivers and the offensive line too. And, you know, even one really weak link can, can cripple a passing game. The O-line was, was certainly a continuing issue uh, last year. It could take quite a long time to, to rebuild that. Do you see, in your estimation, any significant difference in quality of play for either your line or the receivers this year? Like, like, is there any real reason to think we're going to see like a lot worse or a lot better? Well, it really can't get any worse. Um, I don't know as far. So I'll start with the receivers. You've got kind of a mix of veterans who are kind of like low ceiling contributors. Who you kind of know what you're getting. Like Anthony Queel, he's a solid possession receiver and a great run blocker. Really, really good run blocker. Um, Courtney Jackson's back as a slot receiver who I think can do maybe a little more after the catch, but he's, he's been here a few years. 
Um, you got young guys like Damian Alford, who who came on and started the second half of last year, 6'5 Canadian, who can really run. Aronde Gadsden, the second father, was an NFL receiver for the Dolphins, um, someone who was just on the fringe last year who could come in. Amari Hatcher, a second-year receiver. I, I, I think there are guys who could emerge, but no one's shown anything in the spring where it's like, oh, my God, like this guy is going to be the guy. And you know, Dino Babers has said as much. They don't know who the guy is going to be, and th- there isn't really anyone who's maybe <clears throat> elevated to, to take that yet. And, you know, in their defense, they're learning a new offense with a quarterback who was playing wide receiver two years ago. So, with a, you know, with a, you know, an offensive line that presents issues as well, trying to work vertical passing game. So, you know, I think there's wait and see there. Um, on the offensive line, I, I think Syracuse has a few really good players. Matthew Bergeron at left tackle is excellent in pass protection, like probably one of the better pass protecting tackles in the ACC. Um, they've got a couple of veteran guards in Dakota Davis and, and Chris Bleich is a Florida transfer who's coming off his latest hip surgery. Kind of a guy who, if, if he's healthy, you maybe have three guys who you really, really like there. And if he's not, I don't know how you, you're really able to patch it up. Um, and then again, they've got some younger guys who are emerging. Kalen Ellis is a 388-pound Hawaiian guy who moves as well as a fringe 400-pound player. You, you'll kind of see, <laughs> I guess, at a school like that. Um, I think they need a grad transfer or, or a high-level transfer to play tackle or center. Um, and then you've kind of got a couple of older, versatile guys who are good, but again, ceiling capped. They're gonna they're gonna need help against really good ACC pass rushers or defensive tackles. Uh, by the way, having done a lot of these now, every single school is looking for a grad transfer offensive tackle. So, it would be nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, th- those guys seem to get their NIL taken care of, and they don't tend to leave schools if, if they're actually – if they're pretty good. Um, yep. So most of our time we used on the offense here. I do have a couple questions about the defense. Uh, still running three three five. still should be a, a solid defense at the very least. Uh Linebacker and DB should still be pretty damn good unless I'm missing something, right? Like everybody's back oh, yeah. and they were pretty solid last year. Linebacker and corner should be great. I mean, they got five guys who are at the very least in NFL conversations, which for Syracuse is as good as yeah. it gets. Um, anybody new that we need to know about in the back end there, like back seven? Yeah. Um, Elijah, yeah. Elijah Clark, um, a safety transfer from Rutgers. He started uh, maybe like half the season as a true freshman last year and then had some kind of lower body injury. Um, So he hasn't really been able to mix in much in the spring. Like he, they had their spring game last week and it's like two thirds of the way through the spring and he dressed, but wasn't ready to go live yet. So I I think once he's fully in the mix, he's someone who compete for snaps. And then Braylon Oliver is another second year transfer from Louisville who did not play last year. He's going to mix in as well. I'm not sure if he'll end up being a guy right away, but I think his range is makes him someone who down the road is someone who could contribute. I mean, the the real focus of the defense is going to be on the, on the front three for the off season. I'm I'm glad you went there. So uh, everybody who had 250 plus snaps on the defensive line last year is gone, right? Yep. How, how's this going to look? Yeah, I mean, the spring was kind of like – it's like that meme with the dog in the bur- burning building, and everyone's like, oh, this is fine. I'm, like, looking at these guys, and I'm like, what do you mean this is fine? Like, you're starting <laughs> defensive tackle. It's a second-year guy who, who, for a true freshman defensive tackle in the ACC, did well. But, you know, he didn't have a redshirt year. He didn't have a year, you know, to, to focus on his strength and conditioning. He was learning Lockett three, three, five. Or, uh, or Yeah, Terry Lockett. Yeah, Terry yeah. Lockett. He had to play. You got Caleb Okachukwu, who's a fourth- or fifth-year guy – 
who's who has played, who you can rely on a little bit. And then the most interesting piece in the defensive line room is Steve Lynn, who who is also, I believe, a fourth year guy who's like six five, in, incredible speed, you know, great pass rusher, but he's trying to put on weight to get to 240 pounds. How is that gonna work? You know, like how are they gonna be able to move him around to keep him off blocks where where the linebackers can flow and, and tackle? And it's just like I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. They're definitely going to bring in at least one transfer. Um, but after that, you've got a bunch of guys who haven't played. you got a bunch of – got a handful of second-year linemen who redshirted and were in a strength program and everyone says are going to be great, but they haven't played college football before. And the guys who have played haven't – like you said, they haven't crossed a 250-snap threshold. They haven't been key contributors. They lost their five best, most heavily played linemen from last year. It's I don't know how you fix that. Yeah, and so that like obviously we talk a lot of betting on cover three uh, at times. Yeah. Like th- this is an area I'm going to circle. If they, if, if you know, you never hope for injuries. Obviously, if they catch early injuries, this is a oh, spot yeah. where it really could spiral. It looks like. I mean, you're dipping down into true freshmen slash walk-ons. Uh, I would suspect or guys playing pretty out of position. Um, yeah, I mean there are there are um, a number of scholarship first and second year players. Uh, Jatias Gear, Elijah Fuentes Cundiff, and um, Chase Simmons all redshirted last year. They've got a couple guys who are early enrollees, and Dennis Jackson and, and Francois Knowlton. There is a walk on in the mix, and, and Kayvon Darton, who, who may play. But you're certainly talking about inexperienced guys, scholarship guys, but you know, inexperienced guys, many of whom maybe haven't even played in, in odd fronts all that often. So there's going to be in positions that they're not even that familiar with. Sure. Stephen Bailey of Cuse on 24-7. You can follow him on Twitter at Stephen with the PH underscore Bailey1. That's Stephen underscore Bailey1. Really appreciate the time, man. I don't think we're getting breakdowns of Syracuse football anywhere else, and I'm really glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much, bud. I really appreciate it. All right, take care, buddy. Explore the weaponization of rap lyrics in the criminal justice system in the new documentary, As We Speak, Rap Music on Trial. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. Hey, guys. Welcome back in to Summer School with Bud Elliott. I'm here with Bryce Kuhn, who covers all things Georgia Tech, Yellow Jackets for Go Jackets on the 24-7 Sports Network. Bryce, man, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it, Bud. It's uh, first time, but, man, I'm excited to talk with you today. No doubt. And uh, I think this is the first one we've done where we actually came up with a name for this series before – I was uh, introing them with the name TBD, and now we're calling it uh, the you know, Cover Three College Ball Summer School. And um, I'm, I don't, I don't hate the name. So I like it, like it. Um, hopefully, it's a little better than what we had. Speaking of maybe being better than what you had, uh, mm-hmm. maybe not a great, great segue. Three and nine last year for the Yellow Jackets, uh, power rated. Uh, I think FPI and SP Plus had a 96th on on average, which is mm-hmm. not really what Georgia Tech fans were we're hoping for. Yeah. I mean, listen, you hit the nail right on the head, not what the fan base is looking for. And and I think the biggest thing, bud, with this is that the expectations going back now, four years ago, bringing Jeff Collins into the mix, it was supposed to be a lot higher. I mean, the, the, the marketing, the, uh, the branding of the school, which don't get me wrong, was needed switching from triple option to the, the new age coming into the new age of college football. They needed that. Now it's the results that have been lacking. And so there is a little bit of uh, – I'll say this. There, there's, there's, a, there's a big divide in the fan base. Some still believe 
some uh, really equate that COVID year as a, a big misstep in the uh, maturation process of this roster. But then a lot of people are like, it's year four, we want results. And I think the biggest part of that, and you know, you covering college football, you know where Georgia Tech's situated, really kind of the college football capital of the world in Atlanta. And you're sandwiched in between two of the biggest programs in the country, Georgia and Alabama, the drive, the need for results for that fan base, which is a hungry one, uh, it's definitely there. It's interesting you bring up that COVID year. And I was going through the the previous year's results this morning before before this, and uh, I was like, man, I really don't know how to evaluate the job Collins has done in totality because of the fact that they were they were switching from the triple option. I mean, the recruiting mm-hmm. has been disappointing relative to the expectations of recruiting because Jeff Staff said recruited well at prior stops. And I wasn't one of those guys that thought, hey, they're going to challenge Georgia on kids very often. You know, I just figured, mm-hmm. hey, can they can they challenge like a South Carolina or some of the schools that kind of get Georgia's seconds, right? Can they get enough of those dudes when the academics fit uh, to, to get there? But the, the COVID year, I mean, do you think this is more of a five-year type rebuild rather than a 3-4 due to the triple option switch and, and the COVID switch? You know, I'm in the camp that does believe that. And I think the biggest thing for it is because obviously COVID knocked out a year when you started a true freshman quarterback. I mean, that first game, Georgia Tech versus Florida State, Jeff Sims does a great job. I mean, he, I don't want to say they won despite him sometimes that season, but he's a freshman. He showed flashes, but he also showed what an 18-year-old freshman is going to do at the highest level of college football. But I think for other things and just trying to install new ideas, when you're having to do that over Zoom, I mean, you and I have sat in enough Zoom meetings talking with people. Imagine trying to install new schemes, learning something completely new. I think that really did throw these players off, and I think it's something that fans, while there is obvious frustration, yeah, you probably should have still won more than three games. You know, Losing to the Citadel is never a good thing. But I think that when you have this – it's an excuse they can go back on, but you know, he was given a seven year deal. And that was one thing that Todd Stansberry said at the beginning, this is not going to happen in two, three, four years. But I think year four is very pivotal, even with the COVID year that you kind of just wash it all out. I mean, in my opinion, there were some good things. There were some bad things And 2021 was something that I think there were higher expectations and those still didn't meet, which has turned up the hot seat a little bit. And, you know, so, Here's where I, I, I kind of have some some real questions about mm-hmm. this year's team. Like you, you mentioned, you you still believe it's a long term process. I, I think it almost has to be a long term process. But some of the departures that they had, either via you know guys like guys who are out of eligibility or out of eligibility, that's not mm-hmm. that's not really a choice. But you know, lo- losing guys, you know, like like a Jameer Gibbs and some of those from an offense that was you know, 83rd overall in, in power rated last year, 64th in rushing, 96th. In passing, and now they lose three of their top four pass catchers by by uh, by yardage. Um, it, they lose some offensive linemen too, but I'm almost more willing to write that off because I feel like some of those linemen were not that great. Like, yeah, but is there any way this offense is actually better? You know, I, I posed this question on our boards the other day, and I said, just because you have returning experience doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be a step above. And I think we figured that out last year. Uh, 2021 was a year where there were a lot of guys returning on the offensive line. And just to stay there for a second, I think that this year, to me, and this is what I believe, the guys that they've recruited with Brent Key, I thought the talent was better at the freshman and sophomore level 
those guys just weren't ready to play major college football. You know, maybe it's due to a strength conditioning aspect. Maybe it's due to the knowledge of a blocking scheme at the college level, which is way different than what they did in high school. I think the talent is going to get there, but it's younger. It's just a younger group. And, you know, they added some transfers, the kid from Clemson, kid from Alabama, that are going to be, I think, good spots and good good guys to have there. But when you talk about losing a guy like Jameer Gibbs, I just said that, and every single Georgia Tech fan listening and watching this just threw up in their mouth a little bit because that is just kind of the crown jewel of what they were able to pull in. And he's in Alabama. And to me, I don't, I haven't looked at a ton of the odds, Bud, but, I mean, he's a guy that is going to be in the Heisman conversation all the way until we get to the season. I mean, he's going to be one of those guys in that offense. I know we did our uh, our all-transfer team on cover three, uh, and he was actually the pick over uh, Zach Evans mm-hmm. to be on on the on the national all-transfer team. Yeah, and, and so you lose a guy like that that I you know created opportunities for himself in spite of a faulty offensive line. You know, this is a team that offensively I think that they feel like they're getting better. And I think the biggest thing for me last year watching this team in every single game was the lack of an identity. And so the the bringing in Chip Long, which to you know major Power Five teams that's not the sexy hire, but for a team like Georgia Tech, they can look and say, okay, the one year at Tulane that we're going to throw that one away. But going back to what he did at Notre Dame, if if Georgia Tech can somehow just find an identity and be able to recruit players to that identity, which is under the previous offensive coordinator regime, I don't think that was quite. Uh, truthfully, I don't know if that was really kind of the process. It didn't feel like that. It just kind of felt like it was just, you know, pick something out of a hat at some points because there was so much struggle. And I think Chip Long, for better or for worse, is going to stick to an identity that he's trying to bring in as a philosophy to this offense. And and we'll see. I mean, they've got some pieces that um, even some of the fans have never heard of. Like you talked about, when you lose some some guys, some some returning talent like they did, uh, you're going to have to get some key contributions from some guys that maybe you don't know right off the roster sheet in the depth chart. But we'll see. I mean, time will tell, but I think there are reasons to be optimistic uh, just because at least you know you're going to have a philosophy that this is our identity as an offense. I don't think that was there before. Got it. So potential for the offense to be better if the O-line, the young guys mature, you minimize the drop-off of what you lose in skill positions, you get offensive identity, and, and Sims takes a leap mm-hmm. as a thrower. Um, the other side of the ball, though, is a little more concerning to me in some areas. I, I may be wrong on this, so I'm, I'm really glad we have you on. I can pick your brain yeah. on this for summer school. So 103rd overall last year, 61st in rushing efficiency allowed, 125th, though, in pass defense. And then I scroll down here, and all five defensive backs who had more than 350 snaps are gone. That may not be a bad thing, given that they were 125th in pass defense, but it doesn't make me feel great. Yeah, that's that's been another hot topic all you know off season so far about this. Is going back to it, returning production does not always equal you're going to be better. And I think that fans are glad to see a welcome sign. You know, they added through the transfer portal uh, with this. They've got some young guys. They got a high. Uh, you know, impact guy, Jalen Marshall, a four-star recruit. They were able to flip from Arizona State. So I think that they're taking steps, and they have the new hire in Georgia Tech, you know, uh, guy, Traveris Tillman. So there's a lot of different things that it's just new. And I think that's what people want to see, just something new. Because like you said, I think the nightmare scenario occurred for this program where you switch offenses from the triple option to more modern-day spread type of offense – You expect your defense to help carry the load while the offense continues their turn. 
Well, last year was the culmination of a nightmare scenario. Your defense not only was bad, but you just threw the numbers out. Like, historically bad for Georgia Tech defenses. They weren't able to do that, and so the wheels fell off. And so when you go back to that secondary, like you said, losing those five guys, uh, Wesley Walker goes to Tennessee, a couple guys just leaving, uh, Wanye Carper, Wanye, Wanye Thomas, Tariq Carpenter, and, um, and, and, and Trey, Trey Swilling. Swilling. Yeah. To me, all of those guys are great stand-up individual guys. Would, would want them to be a face of your program when you take an immediate day. But when it comes to playing on the field, I think that there's some guys that can make an impact. But like you said, it's a bunch of unknowns. And so what do we know? We, we, we may not know right now what we don't know about this team. And so you would say by the numbers, it can't get much worse. But we'll have literally, to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally, numbers-wise, it cannot get much worse. But I think that's something that, you know, uh, one thing they did this offseason, bud, is they actually had a cornerbacks coach and a safeties coach. They're done with that. They went straight to a DB's coach in hopes of communication-wise, it'll help. The last two games of the season, they got outscored 100 to nothing by Notre Dame and Georgia. I mean, it's it was 45, 55 and 45 to nothing. If you go back and watch those, which not a lot of Georgia Tech fans want to do, or just college football fans because it wasn't pretty football, if you go back, you see a lot of busted coverages where it's just communication, not athletic ability. All these guys are great athletes. But just plain communication, not knowing where to go. And I think that's that was a point of emphasis in spring ball, just to you have to know your job so then you can play free. You don't want to use the quit word, but like in those two games, it was like this is some of the some of the buy-in level did not look great. I, I, I did watch some of the Notre Dame game. I did not watch the George game. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that those those were those were a tough look. Um, last one here and I'll get you out. The level of drop off you're expecting a defensive line with with, with I, Ivy transferring out and and Brooks and, and Griffin uh, leaving as well. You know, defensive line. The biggest thing for that is if your secondary struggling, maybe you can have a defensive line that can force pressure and take and alleviate some of the uh, concern in the secondary. And I think that's going to be uh, something we have to just kind of maintain. They add a defensive lineman, experienced guy, Morris Joseph, out of Memphis through the transfer okay. portal. They're trying to add some pieces. And I'll tell you this, talking with some people close to the program, the idea is that they are still going to hit the portal hard. There's still about 10 to 11 spots open that they know of right now. And as we know, this is unprecedented. I, I always equate it for baseball fans. It's like when your favorite team goes to the waiver wire right after spring training. After spring ball, I think there's going to be a none, another influx of portal where guys are making decisions. And I think Georgia Tech's going to have to be heavily involved because you talk a guy, you lose a guy like Brooks on the interior that, you know, the stats don't stand out, but he was a veteran leader and a disruptor, able to to help in the run defense. Then your two guys on the end, and Jordan Dominic and Jared Ivey. Dominic, obviously a veteran, but Jared Ivey, I think it was more, and, and this is a high character guy, high motor guy. I think he's going to do some things at Ole Miss this year as a, maybe a rotational pass rusher and kind of get onto the scene where that might not would have happened because of all the attention was going to be directed on him this past, this past season if he would have stayed at Georgia Tech. So uh, those are two key pieces and three key pieces that you're losing. They're going to have to find ways to fill that. They're still looking in the portal. I know that. And so I think they're going to be heavily involved. I don't know. It's not like NFL free agency where there's a Von Miller out there sitting on the free agency market. It's going to be by committee. They're going to have to find some different options and weapons to go with and get creative. New defensive line coach, David Turner, uh, working alongside, uh, you know, Larry Knight. It's going to be interesting to see 
how they get creative with some of their, you know, blitz packages and what they want to do. Awesome. Well, we will stay tuned to Go Jackets. Bryce underscore Coon on Twitter. Bryce, really appreciate you joining us here on the Cover 3 Podcast, College Football Summer School Edition. Talk to you soon, bud. Appreciate it, bud. Thank you, man. All right, that's the bell. Cover 3 College Football Summer School is over for today. But don't worry. We'll be back soon with even more episodes filling you in on the top teams in college football. Please give us those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on YouTube and on Twitter at Cover 3 Podcast. And we'll see you all soon. It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount+. Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. Magnificent! And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day. In the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount+. Plus.